Amen. Thank you, Mike. Well, I trust everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. Good to see most of y'all back. Um, some of you are well-traveled. My family and I went to Williamsburg. That's our um, annual trip north, and uh, we had a great time. Good to connect with folks um, or connect with that area up there. Um, we are starting into our Christmas series called Made Whole, and so we'll be tackling some of the subject matter that we experienced during the Christmas season. Um, our text today comes from the book of Philemon. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 21 and 22. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over there. Let me give you just a little bit of background what's going on with this letter. If you're having a hard time finding Philemon, first of all, uh, if you get to the book of Hebrews, you went too far, you need to turn left and uh, make your way back. And Philemon is just before you get to the book of Hebrews toward the end of the New Testament. Um, Philemon is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a guy named there you go, you're catching on. And so there's another fellow, though, that's involved in all this, and his name is Onesimus, and we're going to see what's going on there. Paul has a big ask of Philemon. He's asking him to do something monumental. He's asking him to do something that's very difficult, very hard. And so we're going to see uh, some of the details of what's going on in this particular letter, why Paul writes it. So let's stand and read together from God's Word today. Philemon, we'll be reading verses 21 and 22. I don't say chapter 1 because, you know, it's so short. There's no chapters here. So here we go, verse 21 and verse 22. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. You may be seated. All right, so let's kind of walk back through, the, start at the beginning of this letter and work our way forward to what we just read. And we'll see what the details of the story and why, why Paul writes this particular letter to, uh, to this guy named Philemon. It begins, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Now let's stop right there. Paul says that he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't mean that Jesus is standing outside keeping guard over his prison cell, that he's literally a prisoner of Jesus. He doesn't mean that Jesus put the handcuffs on him, that Jesus booked him, that Jesus sentenced him, that Jesus is making sure that Paul stays in jail. That's not what Paul is talking about when he says he's a prisoner of Jesus. When he says that Paul's a prisoner of Jesus of Christ, he means that I am a prisoner today because I was out preaching about Jesus. I was out teaching about who Jesus is, and the local authorities didn't like what I was saying. They didn't like the, the ruckus that it was creating. And so because of that, I was thrown in jail. So in that sense, Paul's saying, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says that he's writing this letter to a fellow named Philemon. What do we know about Philemon? We don't know a whole lot about Philemon from extra-biblical um, content. Really, all we know about Philemon is what's right here in this letter. First thing we know is that Philemon is a man. Um, he's a guy. Uh, we also learn from the letter that Philemon has a house church that meets in his home. Look at verse 2. It says, um, I'm writing to you, Philemon, and also to the church that meets in your house. We also learn that Paul is the one who led this guy to Christ. Look at verse 19. It says, not only to mention that you owe me your own self, your very self, and here referring to the fact that Paul had led this guy Philemon to Christ. Philemon owes his, uh, a debt of gratitude to Paul for sharing the gospel with him so that um, Philemon could respond. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, Paul also addresses this letter, it says, to Apia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow um, soldier, and why not? I'll just include the whole church that meets in your house. So what's Paul doing here? He's addressing this letter specifically to a guy named Philemon. Philemon's going to get handed this letter, but in addition to that, other people are going to get to read what's in this letter. So Paul is including not only the, some of his friends, Apia and Archippus, but he's also including everybody that comes to Philemon's house for church on Sundays. So the whole church, the whole congregation is privy to read the contents of this letter. And why would Paul do that? Well, 
Do you suppose that Paul, being that he's going to ask Philemon for something really big, something really monumental, something that's going to be very difficult for Philemon to say yes to, that perhaps he's creating some accountability? Perhaps this way that when Philemon goes out to the grocery store and he runs into somebody from his church and they go, uh, hey, Philemon, how's it going with that thing that Paul asked you about, right? Or when Philemon goes to you know, one of the sports games or something, he's celebrating the big win that, that day. So people are coming up to him after the game and saying, hey, Philemon, how's it going with that thing that Paul had asked you about? So Paul is creating some, uh, some accountability around this ask that he's getting ready to, um, to ask of Philemon. That's pretty clever, Paul, don't you think? Some people might say it's a little manipulative, of Paul, but nevertheless, he wasn't above that. He was more than willing to do what he needed to do to ensure a particular result. You follow me? Okay, so let's, uh, here's another example of that. Take a look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, I could command you to do this thing that I'm asking you to do. Paul is an apostle. He does have some positional authority that he could call on, uh, in theory anyhow, and force Philemon's hand, force him to do this thing that Paul's asking him to do. Um, Paul even says, verse 9, he says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, right? I'm just an old guy. Can't you do the, the last wishes of an old man? And he says that, again, he reminds him that, hey, look, I'm also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul is painting on thick with this guy, isn't he? He's telling him, hey, look, I'm an old guy. Just respect the wishes of an old man. I'm in prison for Jesus. I'm probably going to have my head cut off soon. Can't you do what it is that I'm asking you to do, Philemon? Find it in yourself to do that. Um, and so, and he puts the whole church on notice. Uh, he pulls rank on Philemon. He reminds him that he led Philemon to Christ. He reminds Philemon of Paul's own suffering and his sacrifice. And so all this begs the question, what exactly is it that Paul is asking him to do? What is so big, so gargantuan, so difficult Philemon may be like, despite all these levers that Paul is pulling on, that Philemon may say, I'm sorry, I can't go there. Well, let's take a look. Verse 10 tells us, he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became while in prison. So the issue at hand centers around this fellow named Onesimus. Um, he says, I appeal to you for Onesimus. And who is Onesimus? Skip on down to verse 15. It tells us, for this perhaps is why Onesimus was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. And here's the important line, verse 16, no longer as a bond servant. So this fellow named Onesimus has a relationship with a fellow named Philemon. Onesimus is Philemon's bond servant, his bond servant. Other, other translations say his indentured servant. Basically, in the, old, in, in the Roman times, this is what we refer to as a slave. Now, this was different than the slavery that we experienced here in the Americas. This was this type of slavery where somebody would go in the employ of another person. Perhaps, Ones, perhaps Philemon would uh, practice a particular trade. Perhaps uh, when we were up in Williamsburg this past week, we walked into the shoemaker's shop. And so the shoemaker knows how to make shoes, right? But they need somebody to work alongside them to help with all the... Uh, what's the word I'm searching for here? But the stuff he's going to make, right? Thanks for your help. I appreciate that. So the inventory. There we go. That's the word. Thank you. So he's trying to help with all the inventory. So Santa needs some helpers in his workshop. And so he's over there making these shoes. And so he's got these people that he brings in. And so he gives them an offer that, hey, look, if I house you, if I clothe you, if I feed you, I will also teach you the trade of shoemaking so that you can, after a number of years in my, in my service helping me out, you can go out and make shoes yourself, or you can go out and be a blacksmith, or you can go out and be a wheel maker or a cabinet maker, or whatever the trade was that the person was learning. And so that's what a bond servant was. And this would take several years, and all the while, Philemon is paying to house and to feed 
and to clothe this guy named Onesimus. While Onesimus, in exchange for house, feed, clothing, teaching, learning the trade, in exchange for that is giving his labor. And so before they had trade schools, before they had technical colleges, this is what they had. This is how the trades were passed on. This is how the trades were taught from one generation to the next. Instead of paying a professor money, you pay the, jo- pay the professor on the job with your labor. What, what's happened is Onesimus didn't stay and fulfill his labor obligations. He has been an apprentice, perhaps for several years, learning the trade, but just when he was getting good at his work, just when Ones- or Philemon was beginning to get a return on all of his investment, Onesimus skipped town. Onesimus said, I'm out of here. I've had enough of this. I'm not interested in being a shoemaker. I'm gone. And so all the investment that Philemon had made in this guy, he lost. So it represents a real financial loss and a loss of his time because Onesimus had skipped town. Whatever contract these guys had had for Onesimus to stay for X number of years, Onesimus decided he had had enough and he left, which means that he stole from Philemon. And this did not sit well in ancient times. This was a contractual relationship with obligations from both parties the master tradesman to provide food and clothing and shelter and teaching, and on the part of the bondservant to fulfill his or her term of service. But Onesimus didn't do that. He skipped town. In Roman times, this was illegal, and there were some very severe penalties that went along with somebody that skipped out on their bondservant uh, requirements. Um, and the way that they would punish somebody is they would execute them. But pretty much they had a almost fail-safe, almost 100% uh, fulfillment of, those, of that obligation. Um, so the Romans didn't fool around with that. And so Onesimus, the runaway, has now got his picture plastered, imagine this, all over the Roman Empire. He's a wanted man. Uh, everywhere he goes, he can't present papers. He can't present his, present his identity. If he sees a Roman soldier, he's got to dodge the other way. He's got to travel at night. He's got to be very sneaky about things because if he gets caught, he'll get shipped back to Philemon and more than likely, it'll be the end of him. Something has happened, though, while Onesimus has been out on the run. Something wonderful has happened. While he's been running away, providentially, he has come into contact with someone who knows his old master, an evangelist, a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. Look back at verse 10 with me. It says, Paul writing to Philemon, he says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment, which means that Paul has led Onesimus to Christ, just like Paul had led Philemon to Christ, and now both of these men are considered Paul's spiritual children. Paul is their spiritual father in a way. Verse 11, Formerly Philemon was useless to you, he says, just a runaway, but how things have changed. Now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul has really struck up a wonderful friendship here with Onesimus. He's seen a lot of potential in Onesimus. Um, and he's, he realized, you know, Onesimus has been coming to the Bible studies. He's been coming by the jail. He's been coming by for prayer. He's been praying outside of the time that he's with Paul. And he's really developed a close, intimate relationship with the Lord. He's become very valuable in the work of the gospel and sharing the gospel with people and sharing the good news with people. And so because of that, Paul is writing this letter to Philemon to try and help mend things. Verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Verse 14, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion. Yeah, right. (laughs) But of your own accord. 
Paul's pulling all the levers. He's twisting on this guy's arm hard, right? So here's what's happened. Philemon was Onesimus' master, and Onesimus is a runaway. We got that. While a runaway, Onesimus meets Paul, and Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. We've got that. Several months go by, and as Onesimus grows in his relationship with Christ and becomes an asset to the mission work, an asset to sharing the gospel with folks, Onesimus, during that period, becomes increasingly aware of something in his past, a wrong that he's committed, a debt that he owes. It's a legal matter. But Onesimus knows if he goes back, if he returns home to face the music, well, that might not go so well. So what's happened is Paul learns of the situation, says, aha, I know your old master. Let me write you a letter. And he says, verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, Philemon. And both men hope that the letter and the explanation and Philemon's church knowing about the situation, that they can get Philemon to forgive Onesimus rather than call the local authorities and have him arrested and so on. Not only that, but Onesimus is not returning home to fulfill his obligations. He's not returning home to continue in the shoemaking business. He's not, he's not returning home so that he can fulfill his obligations under, as being a bondservant to fulfill the rest of his years. That's not why he's returning home. He's returning home to get this legal matter settled. Verse 18 says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So what we're seeing, what we learn here is that Philemon's not going to be compensated right? Because Paul says, hey, look, charge it to my account. Paul's a prisoner. What, what, what account, right? Paul doesn't have any money. Um, so it's just, it's just a statement there, right? The point is Philemon has been wronged, and both of these men, Paul and Onesimus, are asking Philemon not only to take the loss, but also to drop the issue completely, no day in court, withdraw all the charges, knock, knock, you'll never believe who's home. Philemon, what you going to do? You know, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One day, we're all going to stand at heaven's gate, knock on the door, and we're going to want to go in. And the only way that we're going to get in is not because we're holding a letter from the Apostle Paul. It's not because of some certificate that we have that says we were baptized in a church some years ago. The way that we get in is because we appeal to the blood of Jesus that he had shed on the cross for your sins and my sins. And friends, that's the only way, the only way that we'll get in. All the rest is religious performance. The only way that we get into heaven is through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross and basing our faith and our trust in the work that he accomplished there. That's the only way we get in. Something for you to think about. One more verse for you, verse 22, we read it at the beginning. Paul says, and we'll close uh, the letter out with this. He says, Philemon, one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given or restored to you. In other words, when I get out of here, Philemon, the first place I'm coming <laughs> is to your house. Again, some more arm twisting, some more pulling on the levers. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, I mean, that's great to know that Philemon and Onesimus had an opportunity to patch things up and that Paul writes this letter. He seemed like a, Onesimus seemed like a pretty good guy in the aftermath of all that. But how does that help me, you know, get prepared for Christmas season and get the lights hung and, and make all the eggnog that I got to make and all the other stuff that's going on with Christmas? What difference does any of this make? 
to me? Well, that's a great question. Let me see if we can answer that. You know, when you think about this story and all the pressure that the Apostle Paul puts on Philemon to comply, it becomes very clear that this is the way that Christians are supposed to operate. That is that we are supposed to be a forgiving people. Jesus taught himself taught Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, verse 15, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, how could we, how could we as recipients of God's mercy, be unwilling to forgive someone else? How could we, as recipients of God's kindness, be willing, unwilling to show kindness to somebody else? How can we, as recipients of God's compassion, as recipients of God's forgiveness, be unwilling to show that same compassion and that same forgiveness to others in our life? On another occasion, Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody who wrongs me? Jesus responds, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 22, uh, not just 77 times, not just seven times, but 77 times. In other words, more times than you can keep track of, Peter. That's how many times you're supposed to forgive. Now, having said that, we also learn from the story of Philemon how hard forgiveness can be. Paul has to pull, all out, pull out all the stops, and even then, there's no guarantee that Philemon ever complies. I mean, you read the rest of the story. Nowhere does Philemon's name ever appear in antiquity. Nowhere, no, no extra biblical accounts. We, never, we don't know whether or not Philemon ever forgave Onesimus. We don't know how this story ended. But the point is, even as hard as forgiveness is, God expects forgiven people to forgive. God expects pardoned people to pardon. God expects the recipients of mercy to show mercy. The Bible says over and over and over again, this is the consistent teaching of the Bible, that this is not an option. The theme is repeated all over the Bible. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13 reads, If one has a complaint against another... Forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And finally, Jesus demonstrates this forgiveness from the cross when he says, Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is all through the Bible. It's a command all through the Bible. It's an expectation that God makes of you and I. Friends, forgiveness is expected by God the Father of us. You say, Gordon, I appreciate what the Bible's saying, and I'm thankful for Jesus's example, but how do I do this? Like, how do I get to the point where I can forgive somebody? Because you, uh, some, you know, what happened to me was more than somebody just took some money out of my wallet. What happened to me was that somebody hurt me deeply, some deep wounds that occurred in my life, and they followed me through my life. I mean, how do I, even if I wanted to forgive, and, and I'd like to. I mean, I hear the scriptures telling me. I see Jesus' example. But I don't know that I can get myself to that place. How can I do that? Well, friends, one of the great benefits of being a Christian is that we have access to heaven's resources. And friends, God will give you the power to forgive if there is a desire in your heart to forgive. You say, well, how does that work? How does God do that? I have no idea. Other than through the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't know how God gives us the power to do that, but I do know that he does that. I don't know how amoxicillin works, but when I have a sore throat and I take amoxicillin, my throat feels better. So, I mean, that what we're saying here is that we need to get on our knees, that we need to spend time before the Lord. We need to petition him and say, God, I, I don't have it in me, in my flesh, to forgive this person, to let this stuff go. 
but I'm looking to you, and I know that you have the power and that you'll grant me that power. So in the same way, um, if we ask God long enough and persist in asking him to help us forgive, that eventually God will soften our heart and give us the power to forgive, even if it's someone who has wounded us deeply. You know, one of my favorite people is a lady by the name of Corey Tenboom. I shared a little bit of her story last week, and I'd like to share another story or account from her life today. She was captured by the Nazis during World War II and hi for hiding Jewish people in her home, and then she was thrown into one of the worst concentration camps in all of Germany. While in prison, her mother died, her sister died, and her father died. She was the only of her family to survive. Years later, after the war, Corey was speaking at an evangelistic meeting in Germany. She said that after the meeting was over, she stuck around to talk and pray with anyone that wanted to come forward. And she said as she was standing there at the front of the church, an old man came walking down the center aisle, and she recognized him as one of the prison guards at the camp where she had stayed. And she goes on to talk about how he was one of the worst, how he mistreated her, mistreated her sister. She said that suddenly all of the pain and all of the horror and all the suffering that she had experienced at his hand came rushing back and flooded into her mind. She said she just stood there frozen, didn't know what to do. As the man walked up to her, he couldn't even look her in the face. And looking at the ground, he said, Miss Tenboom, I came to ask if you would forgive me for what I did to you and to your sister. And she says, and I quote, there he stood before me, seeking my forgiveness and mercy. Just as I had stood before Jesus Christ one day, begging for his forgiveness and for his mercy. In light of what God had done for me, what else could I do but forgive him? She concludes by saying, God flooded my heart with compassion for this poor man. I reached out and hugged him, and we both stood there and wept, end of quote. Friends, forgiveness is tough. And despite all the earthly motivations that we could possibly place on someone, despite knowing in our mind what it is that we're supposed to do, we may not be able to get there on our own. But with God's help and with God's power, like Corey, we can come to a place where we're able to forgive. Let me add a little caveat here in this conversation. Forgiveness does not mean removing the consequences. If somebody commits a crime or if they do something that's unlawful, by forgiving them, we are not canceling their responsibility to face the consequences of their actions, especially if those actions were indeed criminal. Nor does forgiveness mean going back into a destructive relationship with that person. I mean, if you have a business partner and they've cheated you or they've stole from you, forgiveness is not asking you to go back into business with them. Um, or if you have a friend who has betrayed you, forgiving that person does not mean reestablishing a close relationship with that person. That trust has to be regathered. It has to be earned. What forgiveness means is to be able, by God's supernatural power, to declare that the hurt that was done to you is ancient history. And by ancient history, I mean what you did to me back then was not okay, but I'm okay now. What ancient history means is what you did to me was wrong back then, but I'm okay now because of the work that Jesus has done in my heart. Declaring their hurts against you as ancient history means 
that you are able to move on with your life liberated from bitterness, liberated from malice, liberated from a desire for revenge. It's like Romans 12 and verse 18 says, as much as it lies with you, because you can't control what somebody else does, as much as it lies with you, be at peace with everyone. No malice, no bitterness, no hatred, no ill will, no desire for revenge, just peace. It's okay now. Friend, if today you'd say, Gordon, I'm not at peace with all men, then let me encourage you to be committed to stay on your knees, to petition the Holy Spirit to give you the power that you don't have in yourself, to do that thing which God has commanded and expects of you and I to do to keep staying there until God gives us the power that we can say from our heart, okay, ancient history, I'm okay now. God will get you there, friend, if you want to get there. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. We thank you, Jesus, for the example. While you were hanging there on the cross and all of humanity was hurling our sins at you, to say in that moment, forgive them for they know not what they do. Lord, may we, through your power, be able to live out that example in our own lives. If there are people in our world, people in our past, that we need to let go of some things and declare what happened ancient history by your power, by your might, Lord, make it so. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Thank you.